Well, it has been quite a week, Arbor. We've had this little thing you might have noticed in our nation called an election, and that followed on the heels of All Saints Day, which followed a full blue moon on Halloween Eve. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but Halloween, it's a little bit different in my family. All my kids are young adults. They're older teens, and so it's not nearly as fun of a holiday as it was when they were little and adorable and, you know, nice. Uh, but last year, my kids were all hanging out with their friends on Halloween, and so my wife Jody and I thought it would be fun to text them dad jokes while they were out and about, and, and these were, you know, brilliant jokes like, what is a vampire's favorite fruit? Nectarine. Or, uh, you know, what do you call a haunted chicken? A poultry guys, right? <laughs> we were hilarious. And, uh, but we didn't get any feedback from the kids. Finally, I just got a, a one-word text back from my 17-year-old son, and he had texted the word, stop. So he just, he, he didn't get the love, right? He, wasn't, he just wasn't feeling the love. And Arbor, I just want you to know that that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're talking about love. And we're talking about love in, in this kind of radical sense, in, the, in this kind of over-the-top, expansive sense of love that all starts from God. And, and in fact, that's the first truth that I would point you to this morning is that God is the source of love. He is the source of love. He's the source of this wonderful, expansive, beautiful, outlandish love. And so let's jump in. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. There it is. He is the source. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, I hope what you've noticed from that is that we love, not, not only do we love because he first loved us, but we get that God is love, that that's who he is, that that is his character. So much so that John's writing, look, if, if you don't love, he says, it, it's as if you don't even know God because love is who God is. And when you love, you're participating in his character. And again, this is a big kind of a concept. It is a, it is a massive, it, it, it is this, this beautiful, over-the-top concept of God's love. So I just want to read you two verses. This is what God himself says about his love for us. He says, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. Isn't that such a beautiful word? Everlasting. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. So God is saying, my love for you will not end. It lasts forever. And he says, my love for you is unfailing. It will not fail you. The next verse from Isaiah 49 is this. God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Friend, these verses to me are absolutely incredible. You see, his love is everlasting. His love is unfailing. Um, in, in, in the letter that John wrote, when he talks about love, he uses the word agape, and part of that definition of love is unconditional love. And then he says, look, I will never forget you. He says, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And then Jesus, of course, came and, and he embodied that truth 
tangibly for us. Friends, this topic of love is so big and massive and it is super mega ultra important to us. I just want you to know that I want to live my life in the ocean of God's love and I want to point other people to it. I want to share that love with other people. Now, in all these years of ministry, I have met Christians who when they hear we're talking about the topic of love, they sort of roll their eyes and they say, Uh, can't we get past this? Can't we move on to some other topic which is interesting and relevant and, you know, like eschatology or something like that? And I just want you to understand that, my friends, this topic, this concept of love, this is the thing. In fact, St. John of the Cross says this. He says, at the evening of our life, we will be judged on love. I have a buddy named Jeff. And he is a missionary to Kurdistan. And as a part of their outreach there, every time they go, they've used for the past 18 years this tool. They show the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And Jeff was telling me that one one time he was showing this in a public context. The patriarch was there and sort of all of these townspeople were gathered and they were watching the movie. And in the scene where Jesus, played by the actor Jim Caviezel, Jesus says... Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The patriarch said, stop stop the movie, stop the film. And so they stopped it. And then he turns to my buddy Jeff, and he, he has tears in his eyes. He's emotional, and he says, my friend, you must tell me, did, did they really torture Jesus? Did they really torture Isa, he said. That's the name that he knows Jesus by. Did they really torture Jesus like this? And Jeff turns to him and says, my friend, yes, this is true. This really happened. And then he says, and he starts choking up, he says, you must tell me, my friend, did Jesus really pray that his father, God, would forgive those who tortured him? And Jeff got emotional. He said, yes, my friend, that is true as well. And they embraced right in that moment, and that man's eternity was transformed. Because I want you to understand that that kind of love is irresistible. It's that kind of love that breaks down every barrier, which is why, friends, we can never afford to get past this issue of love. And not only because it is the thing, right? So it's the one thing that we're supposed to be known by, by people, as people who follow after Jesus, but because, unfortunately, we are, we are really not that good at it. In fact, if we're not careful, we can always find reasons not to love. So here's a quote from somebody I know you've heard of, Gandhi. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. If Christians would really follow the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Ouch, right? In other words, what he's saying is that by living a life of love, that is actually the most evangelistic method there is on the planet. And again, it's so important for us to understand this because if we're not careful, we can always find reasons not to love. And you might have used some of these reasons in your own life. Well, she hurt me on purpose. Or my partner betrayed me. Or I'm the one who, who's been lied to. I'm the one who's been cheated. Or, 
you know, they stabbed me in the back. It was my dad who wounded me like this. My mom's the one who abandoned me. It was all their fault. I'll start loving them when they start acting lovable. But you see, friends, that's, that's not what Jesus taught. And that's certainly not what Jesus modeled. In fact, I'm going to read you a passage of scripture. This is Jesus teaching in the most famous sermon he ever gave. The most famous sermon, I would say, on planet Earth called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what Jesus says about love. He says, you've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, friends, if you ever doubted that Jesus was a radical, that passage alone would convince you. It, It stretches the boundaries of common sense in this fallen world that we live in. So Jesus starts with the law. He says, you've heard that it was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And what that means is that the harm that you have inflicted on others is the harm that will be inflicted on you. It actually advocates a proportional response. In other words, this is a huge step forward for morality in a barbaric world, in the world in which the law was given. It it limits the, the punishment for the crime. In other words, you cannot crucify someone for a $3 crime, right? There's, there needs to be this proportional justice that is enacted. But what Jesus does is he stands upon the foundation of the law and he fulfills it. And then he points us to the place where the law was intended to point us toward In other words, he knows that if everybody does an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the entire world will have eye patches and false teeth. That wasn't the point. The point was to create a people who would never think about taking an eye or a tooth in the first place. And then Jesus says that if someone wants to sue you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. In other words, give him the matching outfit, right? Really bless him. If someone forces you to go a mile, he says, you volunteer too. Now, you might not know this, but he was actually referencing a law that was on the books during the first century, and it had to do with Rome. You remember that Rome were the oppressors. They were the enemy. And and Israel was being occupied by Roman soldiers in this day. And these Roman soldiers would carry a pack that would weigh up to 100 pounds. And so Jesus was saying, oh, and the, the law was this, that a Roman soldier could grab any Israeli citizen, male or female, and force them to carry their 100-pound pack up to one mile. That was the legal limit. And of course, Rome had mile markers all along Roman efficiency. So what Jesus is saying is, look, the next time a Roman soldier interrupts you in the course of your day, gives you a 100-pound pack and makes you travel a whole mile with him out of your way, 
You volunteer to go two miles. Now, friends, I want you to understand this statement would have landed politically on the people who were hearing it. They would have looked to each other and said, wait, wait, is Jesus being political here? Is Jesus pro-Rome? No, friends, Jesus isn't pro-Rome. He's pro-love. That's what he's all about. And in fact, I don't know how you might be feeling emotionally this week. You know, if you feel happy at the election results or sad at the election results, I just want you to understand that this is an opportunity for you to love and serve and to bless those who are on the other side of the political aisle than you are. And then he goes on. He says, don't win the fight, win the glory for God. Don't revel in your rights, but reveal the goodness of God. He says, turn the other cheek. Do not resist. Friends, this doesn't feel like winning, does it? Right? Who ends up winning in this context? Love does. Who's love? God is love. Right? How hard is this for us to pull off in a fallen world? I would say this is devastatingly hard. It's radical. But it's not nearly as radical as loving your enemies. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is he's not just talking about tolerate your enemies. He's, he's not just talking about ignore your enemies. I can, I can be pretty good at that. No, what he's saying is you're to love them and you're to bless them and you're to serve them. You're to pray for them so that how you love them will be a conduit for the way that they will understand the love of God through you. And of course, this way model. This is Jesus washing the feet of Judas. This is Jesus not throwing the first stone, but forgiving the adulteress. This is Jesus reinstating the Peter who had denied him three times. This is our Lord, the only begotten of our heavenly father, saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive the ones who spit on me. Forgive the ones who whipped my back. Forgive the ones who plucked my beard from my face. Forgive the ones who put the crown of thorns down upon my head. Forgive the ones who drove these spikes through my wrist and into this rough cross. Forgive them all for they don't know what they do. Friends, if we live like this, Jesus says in that passage, then we'll be living as true sons and daughters of our heavenly father. And then Jesus reveals what he's talking about, the heart of the father. He says, your father gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. Now, I'm guessing, Arbor, that most of us live in this Seattle region, and we know how precious sunlight is. We just, we come alive when the sun comes out. Honestly, it's like we live by photosynthesis. You know, we just get energized and optimistic. We get friendly, and we get productive. We're just, you know, singing and whistling and humming and dancing. 19 productive days a year. It's glorious to live here. And and by the way, you need to know that Seattle is the number one sunglass market in the United States. Do you guys know this? It's it's so incredible. And it's not because we're cool. It's because when the sun comes out, we can't do any. We can't dry. We like veer off into the ditch. We literally, it's because we are moles up here. And so the sun comes out. We rush out to Sunglass Hut. We buy our pair of sunglasses. We're, We're so happy. We enjoy them for, you know, a few days. And then the sun goes away for two or three days. It goes away for a, a week or 10 months. And, and we, as good Seattleites, we, we compost, you know, those things. And then the sun comes out and we do it again. So that's uh, for free. Anyway, what Jesus is saying is that God brings this sunlight upon the good and upon the bad. But then he says, God makes the rainfall on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
Now, I always thought that meant God sent bad stuff to everybody as well, right? That the, the, the sunshine meant the good things and the blessings and the, the stuff that makes us feel alive and wonderful. And then God also sends the bad things, the hardships, the, the, the difficulties, the challenges to everybody, right? In other words, sunshine and rain, joy and pain. This is, friends, this is Milli Vanilli theology. And just like the band, it's fake, okay? And, and I didn't realize this until I had the opportunity to go to Israel. I actually was able to be a part of leading a team there through the Holy Land and walking the same pathways that Jesus and his disciples walked. And, and we got our discount rate on our tickets because we chose to go in August, you know, like, like the genius that I was. And, and it's really hot in August. I, I mean, devastatingly Hot. It's the surface of the sun hot in August. Like little kids melting lead and making coins on the streets hot in, in August. And, and it's not a dry heat at all. It's like, it's like baking in a wet oven hot. And, and in the midst of that scenario, all of a sudden, this verse, like, it just came alive to me in a fresh way. Oh, my goodness. Rain means life. Rain means rejuvenation. It means refreshment. It, it, it means that the fields now have this, this lush you know, greenery so that the flocks can eat and, and it, it brings this sustenance. It, rain means survival. It, it means all things renewed. And oh, I suddenly realized that this passage, what Jesus was saying is he was saying, God, your heavenly father brings the sunshine of youth and vigor and vitality and blessing to the good and the bad. And then he brings the rain of refreshment and rejuvenation, of sustenance and survival to the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God showers everyone on this earth with his kindness and his goodness, with his blessings and with his love. It just changed everything for me. You know, theologians have a word for this. They call it common grace. Common grace. It's, it's not the same thing as universalism, right? It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you believe or how horribly you behave. No, no, common grace is really specifically about how God is postured towards us. And it just means that God showers everybody on planet Earth with love and with blessing and with goodness, with laughter, with, with all kinds of great things to enjoy. Why? Because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so that's why he wants us to love those who are opposed to us. It's because he loves those who are opposed to him. And that's why Jesus doesn't want us to win a fight with our enemies. He wants us to win our enemies and perhaps they will become friends. And the only way to win our enemies is to love them when they offer us hate. It's to give them goodness when they give us their grossness. It's to use the strength that Jesus gives us, not to beat the unlovable out of them, but to care for them by loving them. And so today, I want you to embrace the challenge of outlandish love. Embrace the challenge of this kind of outlandish love, this over-the-top love, this ridiculous, doesn't-make-sense-in-a-fallen-world love. And the reason we seek to love like this is that that's how Jesus has loved us. 
So my friends, how are you doing this? The, the highest and the holiest, the hardest challenge that I believe there is in scripture. Well, if you're like me, you need his help with it, right? Who's an enemy in your world? Who would you rather gossip about than love? Who would you rather judge than bless? Who would you rather hold bitterness in your heart toward than serve? You see, as a pastor throughout about 29 years, I have received a lot of love, a ton of attaboys and high fives, a lot of affirmation. But you also need to know that pastors take hits as well. They, they take criticism, they take critique, complaints. And this is true for me too. You know, occasionally through the years, someone has not liked the way that I've led or the, a thing that I've said. They've not liked that I'm hobbit-sized or that I look like Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, etc. But one year, several years ago, uh, actually every year, we do this thing called Easter. And Arbor, you know this, that Easter is this beautiful opportunity for us to invite friends and family, and we gather together, and, and it's just a celebration of the love of God tangibly displayed through the, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it, it's just a beautiful thing. And, and, and in our church context, it just meant that what we did is we just did everything slightly more purposefully, slightly more intentionally. We didn't do anything especially different. We just put on a little bit more spit and polish because we knew this was open house. This was Super Bowl Sunday. This was an opportunity that we might be able to speak to people who don't normally come into our church context. And so, so that was going on. And, and this particular year, Easter had been fantastic. We celebrated thousands and thousands of folks coming in to the house. This was back when you could go to church. And, and there were hundreds of spiritual decisions for the Lord. In this particular Easter, we invited 75 members of our congregation to come up on stage and to share what God had done in their life in this thing we call cardboard testimonies. And we got a thousand positive responses from that weekend. It was just an incredibly beautiful, it was exhausting but there was no doubt that God was on the move that weekend. And so the week after Easter, I got a letter in the mail and I opened it up and I thought to myself, sweet, this is another fun letter from a heart set on fire. Uh, but it, it was a little different. It started off, uh, Dear Pastor Mike, and then it said, I'm writing to express my concern about my experience at church last Sunday. And so suddenly my mood shifts and and I'm going to show you the letter, and, but I've edited it. It's completely anonymous. It said, I attended Sunday for the 11 o'clock service on Easter and found the experience less than satisfactory. I was looking forward to a joyous Easter celebration such as I've experienced in the past. I have never been so disappointed in a church service like this ever before. Turns out she uses the word disappointed about six more times. I used to be a member of your church. This is the part where she talks about leaving a number of years ago and, and the church she attends now and the pastor at that church who's a, a real good friend of mine. And she says, I've been back a couple of times to hear you speak, but I was disappointed in the music each time and didn't return because of that until last Sunday. For some reason, I ended up attending the services rather than making the drive to my church a mistake I won't make again. Ooh. On Easter Sunday, I found that none of the music was even remotely related to Easter and unsingable. That was disappointing. None of the people around me were singing, so I felt like I was singing by myself, finally stopped trying to sing and endured the rest of the music. That was also disappointing. 
And I was disappointed with your sermon. It was not like the wonderful sermons I heard when you first became pastor. I thought you were great. However, this sermon was greatly disappointing. It was simplistic, without the depth I expected. You asked the question of why Jesus, that was the title of the message, but there wasn't a compelling answer. It did not touch my heart or challenge my mind. So when I left the service, I felt I hadn't really had a joyous Easter at all, which was a huge letdown. Very disappointing for such an important day. Instead, I felt rather sad and empty from the experience. Normally, I wouldn't write or say anything, but your church used to mean a lot to me. Now it's a big, busy church with lots of activity, but it left me feeling like I'd been to a mediocre concert, not a worship service at a church I used to love. I wouldn't recommend it. I doubt I will return again, sincerely and in him. And she signs her name. So what I want to do is I want to give you some processing into how I responded. And it's, it's not all pretty. But, but I want you to understand, I did not feel loving toward her in that moment. And that's the point. See, when Jesus says what he says, it's how we love when we don't feel like loving. And, and this letter, it landed like an uppercut to my spiritual jawbone. I, I was left reeling and, and confused. And, and, and I had a bunch of responses just kind of piling into my head. And I knew the author of this letter personally. And I knew of her long, you know, 30 years following Jesus, of how she had served, how she'd given, of the church that she was at. The pastor, again, was a friend of mine. So this wasn't an anonymous person tossing a hand grenade. This was a legitimate source, and it merited some kind of a response from me, only I was so wounded by that perspective and the way she chose to communicate it. So I began to compose a letter to her in my mind. And I, I'm just curious, do you ever do this? Do you ever, do you ever have a conversation with someone who isn't present with you? I know you have. I've seen you in your cars. Yeah. Yeah, I had a bunch of responses. And again, I'll share with you. The first one, I just, I wanted to write her a little, little note card. And I just thought, you know what I'll do is I'll just give her a quote from Jesus. I'll just, I'll go to the Bible. I'll find a quote from Jesus. And I'll just give her a short quote. And I'll send that, you know, sincerely in him. So I, so I found something short and to the point. Words of Jesus. Uh, get behind me, Satan. Sincerely in him. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing about that response. It actually is pretty sincere because words of disappointment, words of disheartening, words of discouragement, those are Satan's words. See, God doesn't want that. And especially to pastors. You know, pastors are the ones who are hanging themselves out to dry week after week after week. They're the ones whose families live in a glass bubble. They're open to criticism 24-7 all the time. Yet you don't think Satan's always discouraging pastors? Of course he is. Satan has no greater victory than to have a pastor leave the pulpit, right? That, like, that's it. And so the next time you feel like unloading on a pastor, Pastor Jake, or any pastor, like the next time you feel really justified in just going and reading them the right act, writing them a letter, telling them you're disappointed six or seven times, and it's the only time that pastor's ever heard from you, think Again, because your words of discouragement, they're not God's words. No, no, it's the enemy of God who wants to discourage you. You'd be working for him. Okay? That's, that's for free. All right. So anyway, I didn't send that letter, and, uh, and I'm glad I didn't send that letter. But I, I, I just, again, this is part of my process. I, I did imagine a second letter 
that I would send to her. And in this, I just thought, you know, maybe I'll just I'll pull the transcript of the message and I'll just send her the entire message. And, and, and I just felt like saying, look, as I pulled all these theological and biblical truths out of the message that was presented, I, I just felt like saying, you know, I'm, I'm really curious, like, like what part of God loving us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross and raise again from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins and the invitation to step into abundant life with him? What part of that did you find especially shallow or unmoving, right? And, and again, I, just, I felt justified in it, but, but I knew that wasn't the right answer either. And then I, I composed a third letter to her in my mind. And yes, I want to tell you, I had better things to do with my time. But uh, I wanted to share with her one story, just, just one true antidote from the 11 o'clock service, the same service that she had attended. Because there was, this, there was this person that attended. He was a friend of mine. I had actually coached his son on the soccer team for about five years. And, and I knew his story. His story was this, that two years previous, his wife left him and his two kids. She just decided she was done with family life and she'd had a bunch of affairs and she just bailed. And so he was kind of reeling, just trying to keep his head above water. He started dating this colleague of his, this wonderful woman. But, but they ended up getting pregnant and this was not on anybody's schedule. It wasn't part of the game plan. And so, so there was just this feeling of overwhelm. Everything was overwhelming to him. And, and so they decided to stay together and to parent together and to try to blend these families together. And he was still trying to figure out where he stood on life and God and marriage and everything. But in the midst of that season of confusion, they started coming to church. And so here they were on Easter Sunday, the entire blended family, they they must have arrived late because they were, they, were, they were parked on the front row. And as I was given the message, I, I did notice my buddy. And you can just tell sometimes when people are tracking with you. He was absolutely tracking with every word that I was saying. He was an active listener. And it's so unlike the way that we present the gospel today, right, to a camera. But I'm trusting that you're with me. And, and he was just tracking with me. And then... When we went to the cardboard testimony and person after person stood on stage and showed the challenge that they had and the way God met them and carried them through their challenge. And my buddy started to cry. And tears were coming down his face. His face became red and tears were just falling off of his cheeks. And, and then he started to sob and his shoulders began to shake back and forth and, and he was just quivering there. And it got so bad and he got so emotional that he took his shirt and he pulled it over his face and he leaned forward and he just sobbed in the front row again. And again, his, his girl was just, woman was just rubbing his back and just saying, it's okay, babe, it's okay. And God was renovating a heart that day. God was absolutely doing what God does. As he meets us in our need. And he loves us in that moment. And he takes us to someplace more beautiful. And he puts our feet on higher ground, and that's what God was doing in that moment. And I really felt like saying to this woman, I'm so sorry. Because the services that I attended, God was moving, and he was gracing, and he was blessing, and he was inviting, and he was transforming. And I'm truly sorry that you didn't have the eyes to see it. By the way, I followed up with my buddy 
And God indeed rocked his world that day. And, and so I began to walk a road with him and he just started standing tall in his faith and, and he still is today. And, and one year after that experience, I was invited to stand before them and to help them exchange their wedding vows and to see from the front lines the restorative, redemptive work of God in action. But even though that's a true story, and even though I felt justified in sending that, I knew inherently that wasn't the right way to go either. I knew that the, the right way to go was not to win the argument or to justify myself, but was simply to try to win the heart. And so I just asked Jesus, I said, you know, Jesus, how, how would you respond to this? And I felt like he gave me an answer. And so me and a, a couple of those that I worked with, we went online and we decided that we wanted to send her a bouquet of flowers. We gave her the, the spring, the grand spring bouquet arrangement. And I, I wrote just a short note. It was the only note that I actually composed and sent. And it just said, got your letter. Praying good things this year for both of us. God's rich blessings upon you. Pastor Mike. And in that moment, I experienced the pleasure of the Lord. I really did experience Jesus saying, yeah, 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 release it. Love her outlandishly because that's the way that I love you. And I really did not expect a response from her. In fact, I kind of, I, I felt like maybe I didn't even want a response from her. I just wanted to release it, sort of leave it there, let, leave her to Jesus and and then uh, get on with my life. I actually, I, I really did have things to do. And so, um, but then I got a, a response from her, an email later in the week. And, and I'm really glad that I did. She wrote me a short email that said, Dear Pastor Mike, thank you very much for the flowers that you sent. They arrived today. A totally unexpected gesture. Really? She didn't see that one coming? <laughs> Shocker. Yes, she said, we need to pray good things this year. You have no idea how timely that message is for me. Thank you. Sincerely, and in him. See, you don't know what other people are walking through. You don't know what other roads folks are traveling. You, you, you don't know what burdens. You don't know what pains. You don't know what challenges or trials they're facing. And that's why I don't think you will ever regret walking the road of intentional radical, outlandish love. Friends, of course it's a harder road to walk, but it's always a higher road to walk. It's the Jesus road. It's the bless your enemies road. It's the extra mile road. It's the turn the other cheek road. It's, it's literally modeled by our Savior, but it's the right road for us to walk. And, and I, just, I just want to wrap that story up by saying I am absolutely certain that God himself was not disappointed with our services on that Easter Sunday. He was glorified. But I also want you to hear me say that God was not disappointed with our response to criticism for that Easter Sunday. He was glorified in that as well. And he will be glorified by his followers as we continue to press in and walk this road of outlandish love. Again, these are the words from Jesus in Luke chapter 6. He says, but to you who are willing to listen, 
I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to the one who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Well, friends, I I really want to be involved in starting a movement of outlandish love amongst followers of Jesus, where we just love people creatively in wonderful and and over-the-top ways, ways that are completely disproportionate to the context in which we find ourselves in, ways that I think are inspired and modeled by our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, as I close, there's this incredible song where David, this beloved of God, this anointed of God, David's just writing his praise to the Lord, and David says, keep me as the apple of your eye. I, just, I, f- I find that phrase almost intoxicating. It's just, it's so beautiful how close he felt to God and how much love he experienced from God. And he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. And And we know what that phrase means in English. It means, you know, when she's the apple of your eye, she's your pride and joy. Or when he's the apple of your eye, he is the one that you delight in. He's the cherished one in your world. And, And yet, and all that's true in the Hebrew as well. But I found that in the Hebrew, there's an additional definition of apple of your eye. And it's, it's really interesting to me. It's translated little man. David's saying, keep me as the little man of your eye. And I always thought that was really interesting. And then I realized that let's say I was standing up here next to Pastor Jake. And the light's coming down just so. And let's say I was to look right in Jake's eye. What would I see? I'd see my own reflection. And how much of my reflection would I see? Well, because of the convex of his pupil, I would actually see my entire body. In other words, I would get so close that I could see the little man in his eye, and it would be me. Friends, when we're talking about outlandish love, I'm... I'm here to tell you there's no way for you and I to do it on our own strength. The only way we can live like this is if we stay so close to Jesus that we can see the little man in his eye. Right? We need to abide with him. We need to remain in him. We need to allow his love to fill our lives and then overflow into the lives of those around us. That's the only way this gig happens, friends. We need his help. So why don't you join me right now and let's ask him for his help today.